Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire and whose feet are like polished bronze. Thyatira was not exactly a vacation spot. You wouldn't go there on your honeymoon. If you went there at all, you were usually just passing through. And of the seven cities in Revelation, Thyatira was the least important, and that's where we need to begin. To help us think about Thyatira, maybe we should review the first three cities that we've talked about. Ephesus was a city that was bold and brash, lots of commerce and lots of religion. Smyrna was a church that was suffering. They were under assault. Pergamum was known for its worldly power, for its marble monuments, and for compromising the teachings of scripture. Thyatira was a union town. The city was known for its high quality bronze used to produce weapons. And when properly polished, they gleamed like gold. It was also known for producing cloth dyed red or purple. You may remember the story in Acts chapter 16 of Lydia, the dealer in purple cloth from Thyatira who met the apostle Paul when he came to Philippi. Economically, the town was dominated by various trade guilds. Mixed with their trade uh, was paganism and rampant immorality. If you were a carpenter or a potter or a metal worker, you joined a trade guild that met at the local pagan temple. And along with the regular trade guild business came the associated idol worship, drunkenness, and rampant sexual perversion. It all came as one big package. You couldn't say, I wanna be in the guild, but I'll skip all those other parts. That wouldn't go in Thyatira. Let me make a side observation before we go on. I think for us in modern day America, we can't even begin to fathom the depth of evil and cruelty and perversion that took place in the ancient world. This was a culture that had both a certain high level of intellectualism in places and was at the same time immoral and barbaric beyond our wildest imaginations. This was certainly true in places like Pergamum and Thyatira. So let's go back to our focus on this small congregation. It seems ironic that the church in the least important city should receive the longest message from our Lord. But this fact reminds us that every church, every church matters to God, even small churches. We can't say my church is too small for Jesus to care about. In his eyes, there are no small churches. We cannot find the slightest word in the New Testament to make us think that Jesus loves only the mega churches of the world. And though big churches garner most of the publicity, by and large, the work of God goes forward in churches of less than 100 people, and that's true in America, and it's true all over the world. So what's important for us to know about how Jesus looks at this local church? Six things. First of all, it's important for us to know that Jesus knows the truth about the church. The message to Thyatira begins with a description of Jesus Christ. Verse 18 says, uh, the son of, this letter comes from the Son of God whose eyes are like flames of fire and whose feet are like polished bronze. This is the only time in the whole book of Revelation that Christ is called the Son of God. 
In our pluralistic society, this is one of the most divisive claims that Christians can make. And we believe that from the beginning of all things, God has existed in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to say that Jesus is the Son of God means that when we worship him, we are truly worshiping God himself. And you may ask, well, what's so divisive about that? Simply that there are plenty of religious people who don't believe that Jesus was fully God. Only a good moral teacher, and that's why the deity of Christ is such a foundational belief in the Christian world. So in Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 18, God is speaking to the church at Thyatira, and his eyes blazing like fire are the eyes that see all things and overlook nothing. And the feet like burnished bronze come in judgment over those who oppose him. Verse 18 tells us that we'd better pay attention to what Jesus says. It's like when the pilot you know, tells the passengers, fasten your seatbelt, we're about to hit some turbulence. A wise person heeds the warning. So it is true with verse 18. Well, secondly, it's important for us to know that Jesus praises the good in this church. In many ways, Thyatira is the best of the four churches that we've studied so far. Look at what Jesus says about it in verse 19. He says, I know all the things you do. I have seen your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. Now the church has the good works of Ephesus along with the love that Ephesus lacked. It has the perseverance of the church in Smyrna that was suffering. And it has the good theology of the faithful who were in the church at Pergamum. And Jesus even says, you are doing more than you did at first. Now I would caution us reading this and thinking this is a great church because it has a busy church calendar. I doubt our Lord ever uh, meant to commend uh, the church calendar. I think he means that the congregation was growing growing in faith and in love and in hope, and that growth was seen in the way they worshiped and served and reached out to others. And to Ephesus, Jesus said, you are strong, but you're now getting weaker. To Thyatira, he says, you're good and you're getting better. And that's high praise from our Lord. Whatever else we can say about Thyatira, the Lord clearly says that they were still making progress spiritually. And it's wonderful to be part of a church that is united, that is growing in love and knowledge and enthusiasm for Christ. So our Lord has high praise for this church that was advancing the gospel in an unlikely place. But third, it's important for us to know that Jesus exposes evil in the church. It is the high praise that Jesus gives this church that makes the rest of this passage so unsettling. Somehow in the midst of their growth, they had allowed an ungodly person to rise to a place of enormous spiritual influence. Verse 20, but I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. Now there are a lot of mysteries in this text that the uh, it, it, that, that are not explained here for us. Who was this woman? How did she rise to prominence in an otherwise excellent congregation? 
Our Lord clearly refers to a real person, even though the name Jezebel is not likely her real name, but an allusion to an Old Testament story. The wicked wife of King Ahab was named Jezebel, and that story is told for us in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. Let me give you the short story of that, of the short version of that Old Testament story, and it goes like this. Jezebel was the daughter of a pagan king. And when she married Ahab, who was king of Israel, she exerted an evil influence over him, and the entire nation began worshiping the pagan god Baal. And even though the spiritual tone of the nation wasn't very good to start with, under Jezebel's influence, evil was exalted and enthroned in the land so that Ahab was known as the, more, the most evil of all the kings before him. And the crafty Jezebel became a symbol throughout history for a seductive form of evil that not only allowed for idolatry and pagan practices, but promoted them and encouraged them and rewarded them. So this was a toxic mix that destroy, was destroying the nation then and destroying the church in Thyatira. But how could such a woman come to power in this congregation? And I think the answer is in the word prophet or prophetess. By claiming to speak for God, she gained credibility with gullible, untaught Christians. And we can imagine that such a woman combined her powerful personality with persuasive speech, maybe a, a seductive smile and contemptuous discorn for her critics. She was no doubt clever, she was quick on her feet, she was slick in her presentation, and she is extremely dangerous. And you see, with Jezebel, you could have it all. You could have salvation, you could have Jesus, you could have heaven, you could have idol worship, you could have friendship with the world, you could have guilt-free sex. You name it, you got it all, you got to do it all under the guise of being a good and faithful Christian. And no doubt her followers filled the pews at Thyatira, perhaps some of them even sang in the choir, and some of them no doubt criticized the Bible teachers as narrow-minded killjoys. And it worked for the first Jezebel in the Old Testament, and it was working for her namesake here in Thyatira. So let me pause here to offer a solemn word of warning. Be wary any time you see or hear those who advertise themselves as people who speak for God. Now it's one thing to be a Bible teacher or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher, but it's something else to claim to receive personal, special messages from God. Anyone who says such things takes upon themselves a fearful responsibility. It is one thing to say God has said this in Scripture. It's another thing to claim that you had a special dream, a special revelation, a special vision that came from God, and he's told you what to tell somebody else to do. Now, in saying this, I'm not trying to pass judgment on any particular person, but there are still false prophets in the world today, and we need to test everything by the word of God. So back to Jezebel. How could such a woman be tolerated in such a fine church? We don't know. Maybe she was related to one of the church leaders that gave cover for her sin. Or maybe the leaders feared that if they confronted her, she would split the church. Maybe they hoped that by tolerating her, she would eventually go away. Who knows? They may have even thought it was the mark of grace to accept her in hopes of reaching her for the Lord. I suspect it was some combination of all of those factors. 
But whatever the reason was, the church had seriously failed by not dealing with this evil person. And it's frightening to think that this sort of thing could happen in an otherwise strong congregation. Lots of well-meaning people have evidently wanted to go to St. Jezebel's church because it was so much fun. You could go to church and believe what you wanted to believe and do whatever you wanted to do. And there was no judgment, no rules, no accountability. Now fourth, it's important for us to know that Jesus judges evil in the church. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. Now when Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, Maybe he means that the church leaders had confronted her about her sinful behavior and she didn't respond. And while it's true that the patience of God is meant to lead us to repentance, it is also true that God's patience has limits. And he will not wait forever. If we persist in our sin, judgment day will ultimately come. And the one piece of good news is that her followers still had time to repent. Jezebel was evidently beyond redemption. Her followers were not, but the bell that tolls for her will soon toll for them as well if they don't change. And Jesus is basically saying, don't be deceived. You cannot continue in your sin and in your immoral behavior forever without facing the judgment of God. In this case, the judgment is spelled out. First, there's going to be some, uh, some intense suffering. And then secondly, her followers are going to die. And third, all the churches will know that God is serious about sin in this church. And these are harsh words. And I know of no way to water them down. This is a church that not only allowed, but promoted free sex, casual sex, hooking up, sleeping around, premarital sex, filthy talk, child pornography, prostitution, adultery, sexual experimentation, and just about every other form of immoral behavior you can think of. And the message from our Lord is, be sure that all this sin is gonna be exposed. Now fifth, it's important for us to know that Jesus does encourage his faithful followers. Look at verse 24. This is Christ's call to the faithful remnant at Thyatira. He says, but I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, the deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. Now the phrase so-called deeper truths gives us a clue to what was going on here. Jezebel enticed her followers by promising them knowledge and experience that came through some combination of pagan rituals, Christian symbolism, and sexual experimentation, all under the banner of learning the deeper secrets that other people do not know. Now false prophets love deep secrets. It's almost irresistible, and we love it. When someone says to us, let me tell you something that only you and I know. 
You see, Jezebel packaged the deep, dark secrets with a little religion, and it became even more attractive. So why be stuck with just what the Bible says when you can enter into this world of direct messages and omens and signs and prophecies that gave you insight into a hidden world that regular Christians didn't have? And that's what she's peddling as spiritual truth. And I find it interesting that Jesus, in this case, doesn't tell them to cast this woman out of the church. Evidently, Jezebel is so deeply embedded in the life of the church that Christ says he's going to take care of her personally. This presumably means he will come in some form of physical judgment dealing with her and her followers. And Jesus has only one command for the faithful followers. He says, hold on, hold on. Don't give in to her seductive schemes. Don't join those who are following her teaching, which is a reminder that sometimes godliness is measured simply by holding on when it would be easier to give up. Well, here's the last point. It's important for us to know that Jesus promises to share his victory with us. Here's the promise Christ makes to those who hold on in Thyatira. Look at verse 26, to all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I receive from my father and I will also give them the morning star. Now, those who remain faithful will one day reign with Christ on this earth. They will share with him in his coming kingdom that will spread across the globe. 2,000 years ago, the world crucified Jesus, but one day he's coming back to rule the world with an iron scepter as king of kings and lord of lords. And if we are faithful, we are going to share in his victory. And we know We will know him deeply and personally, for he is the true morning star that lights up all of heaven. Before I close this message this morning, let me offer some implications of this passage for the 21st century in which we live. I doubt that many of us would dispute that we live in a sex-saturated society. We glorify sex and talk about it so much that it almost bores us. But rampant immorality is only a symptom of a much deeper problem. See, there are a whole lot of people uh, around us who are starving on the inside. And a starving person will take in almost anything you put in front of them, even things that aren't good for them. So why is pornography such a huge business on the internet? It's a matter of supply and demand, isn't it? People make millions off of pornography because it offers a temporary fix for an inner emptiness that we can't satisfy. We've also got a lot of Christian people who have bought into the current culture of sexual freedom, and we know that there is always a Jezebel who's out there ready to talk to us, ready to listen to our problems, ready to offer us cheap and easy and quick satisfaction. So we must be wise and fully aware when a Jezebel comes into our life because that's a person who is gonna take us, body and soul, and lead us away from God. There is no such thing as guilt-free one-night stands or guilt-free hookups, no matter what Hollywood or anyone else tells us. Sexual freedom and experimentation always comes with a price. God wired us so that we would find our deepest intimate fulfillment inside the boundary of marriage. 
Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 reminds us that um, intimacy starts not with a physical act, but with a relationship that leads to a commitment that makes a covenant before God, that creates a deeper connection that God delights to honor. And we honor God when we honor the pure, holy nature of marriage and the physical union of a husband and wife. And we need to teach that to our children. We need to teach that when God created sexual desire, he also created the proper place where it can be fully enjoyed. And to do that, we must also teach our children the last half of Hebrews 13:4, where it says, give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. So let's not miss the main point of this letter to the church in Thyatira. God takes sexual sin seriously. He judges those who practice it, he will judge those who promote it, and he will judge those who tolerate it, laugh at it, or make light of it. And I know this sort of a message is not very popular in today's culture, but we need to keep the lines sharp and clear between the church and the world in the realm of sexual ethics. And let the world do as it will, because left to itself, the world always chooses the path of self-indulgence. But it is the church's job to shine the pure light of God's truth in the midst of the prevailing darkness. So if the church lives like the world, why would the world ever want to be part of the church? Any doctrine that makes it easy to sin, or a doctrine that redefines sin, or any doctrine that makes sin less sinful doesn't come from God. So what then do we say to those who may have messed up in their life, who've made a mistake in this area of their life? Is there grace for us? And the answer is yes. But only if we look for it. Verse 21 reminds us that God even gave Jezebel time to repent, but she didn't want to turn away from her immorality. Evidently, Jezebel preferred her version of life that included immorality and idolatry to doing the hard work of repentance before the Lord. She had a chance, but she was unwilling to repent. And so for her, there was nothing left but judgment. But Jesus offers hope. If we're willing, we can be changed. If we're willing, we can be made clean. If we're willing, we can have a fresh start. If we are willing, our sins can be washed away. We all come to faith the same way, by the free grace of God. And to those of us who have been scarred by some wrong choices that we may have made in our past, if we are willing, we can be forgiven and we can be made clean and we may still live with some of the consequences of our past, but we can have that burden of guilt lifted from our heart. The Apostle Paul declares this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, and a new life has begun. So think of it this way. We can either have Jezebel or we can have Jesus, but we can't have both of them. So which do we want? We can have the cheap thrills of the world and feel sick to our stomach the next morning, or we can have Jesus. A new life now, forgiveness now, real pleasure now, and we will one day rise with him and shine like the morning star. And if we want Jesus, we have to turn our back on Jezebel. And we have to turn our heart over to the Lord. We must give him all that we are. All the issues of our past as well as the present and then trust him as our Lord and Savior. And if we come to Christ just as we are, he will never turn us away. 
because he loves us. He came from heaven to save us. He died on a cross for us, and he invites us to come to him. You see, there is a new life that awaits those who say yes to Jesus. But we will never know that life until we come to him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will use this message this morning to encourage us to not only stand firm doctrinally and to be separated from our sin, but to truly love each other and to love you. The Lord, we pray that if there are some here today who have never trusted the Lord Jesus as Savior, that they will hear with ears of understanding, knowing that Christ died in their place and paid the penalty for their sin on Calvary's cross. God, give them grace right now to put their full trust in you. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.